Um, all right, so if you could introduce yourself, however you like. So I am Gina Duncan. Um, and, you know, professionally, I work in the film industry. Uh, personally, I am someone who just discovered they like running. Mm. Um, I am someone who feels guilty when they're not doing things, um, but also loves not doing things. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and I am someone who um, is... A, a former reader, I should say, a former avid reader who's trying to get back to that. So that's me. Ooh. What's your genre? I, I, I like anything, but I, I was re- thinking about it and where I really, really loved sci-fi as a kid mm-hmm. and, and continued to, and then just kind of moved away at some point. And that's kind of where I'm feeling. That's what I'm feeling right now. So, yeah. Yeah. I actually, I too have been, I, w- I didn't grow up appreciating sci-fi um maybe in 2011 I like binged everything I could get my hands on on Octavia Butler Mm -hmm. and then I was like where has this been all my life yeah um so I've been recently being like I should like be in that space a little bit more so definitely feel you um where are you in the world I'm in Rockland County New York in a little hamlet, as it's called. And I like saying that I live in a hamlet. <laughs> it's the hamlet between the lakes. That's where I am. Oh, okay. Wait, what is a hamlet? Um, I think it's like too tiny to be a town. Uh. <laughs> it's probably population-based, yeah. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in proximity to New York, that's where? Oh, yeah. So I'm about an hour outside of New York City. Hour north. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that where you're from? Kind of. I, yeah, we moved out of like Westchester County, Mount Vernon, lived in the Bronx when I was, you know, really young. But most of my family um, is up here still. So my grandmother, all my aunts, great aunts, etc. So yeah, I'm just across the bridge from essentially where I grew up. And what do you do that is considered work or what is your work? So I get paid uh, to do this work <laughs> that's called uh, producing director um, of the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, I started in September of 2021. And since then, that role has expanded a bit. So um, I'm over... Kind of basically your experience of the of the festival, um, whether you in you know do the festival online or live talks, how we how our values are represented in all that we do. Um, I'm also over the operations aspect of, of that, you know. Then that's also just to ensure the consistency of it, mm-hmm. and then that recently expanded to essentially all of Sundance Institute's programming. Oh, so the the labs oh. and yeah. Yeah, and all the other programming. So that's that's what I get paid to do. So you are Sundance. Yeah. <laughs> In this moment, yeah. <laughs> um, this is a question that I've been asking folks. Um, I didn't know that it was going to carry over into the next group of Black women that I've been speaking with um, for the podcast, but I, I love it as an interesting framing question. 
which is mm-hmm. um, what was your sense or do you have a sense of what your before was and now and how are they different? I've actually been thinking about this recently because I feel where I am right now is so different. <laughs> and I think that my before was not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also wanted to say I am not speaking specifically to career, but just speaking to like, I would say like confidence and peace mm-hmm. is like the demarker which just impacts everything. So I think my before was like a year ago, two years ago. It wasn't that long ago. And that's like, just in terms of marking me in time and say late thirties feels like a really pivotal point for me in terms of moving away from like old insecurities, childhood stuff. And, you know, kind of like the stories that you tell yourself and moving into like what I always dreamed for myself. Ooh. What was the the pivot? Um I think I think the 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 pivot or the moment where I like the the lesson I think that um the experience that I needed to have in order to move more like firmly in this direction um was <laughs> I broke my foot. So I had like a bit of heartbreak and I went to buy a bicycle um, and five minutes after buying the bicycle and like taking it, you know, I took it out the store and right directly on the trail across the street and I fell off of it and broke my foot and I couldn't walk for like three and a half months um, and couldn't drive because it was my right foot and I'm extremely independent and I take myself everywhere. And like, that was so like, that was incredibly tough for me. And it was interesting because I remember people being like, you're so positive and optimistic. And, and I'm thinking like, I'm going back home every night after someone drops me off and just being like, just like falling apart because I can't do what I can't take care of myself. I can't do what I want to do. So I think that was kind of the experience that kind of sent me in into a new wanting to move, like I said, towards like who I wanted to be. What does that look like now for you? Mm. It looks like now for me, kind of, you know, that important lesson that we all need to learn, which is it's not about me, (laughs) you know, and I think, I think as an only child, maybe it takes us a little longer to get there, but it's not about me. So other people's reactions, not about me, you know, Um, even with running, I realized a big part of my hangup was I didn't want to, I didn't want people to see me run. Yeah. How stupid is that? You know? Um, so just yeah, moving into a space where it's like really not about me and like what I do doesn't really matter. I'm sure there's some like hippie or more, you know, new age phrase to talk about this, but it's uh that that that's that's what it looks like for me. Yeah. So you said this is a a late 30s like time frame I'm like "Mm, when am I gonna get to the point where it's not about me (laughs) so I was like it's not about me (laughs) I mean when I say it's not that you know it is about me when it's like you know if I choose to not do this thing or you know if I want to take time for myself that is about me but like taking responsibility for other people's like emotions etc um you know that's not, that's not me. That's not about me. And what a time to come to that 
sort of revelation with the last year we've had. Yeah. I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I was, yeah, I was, I was reading um, uh, Jenny O'Dell's like how to do nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then the pandemic happened and I was like, Oh, here we go. You know? And it was funny because it was like having that um, in my head. And then those early days of the pandemic with, you know, managing a workforce of people who suddenly have nothing to do. And then you see kind of like the true silliness of work mm-hmm. and that everybody's just trying to make up shit to do, you know, like suddenly it was like, and it felt like it was like three months of people just making shit up. And I, I, I was just like, we can actually stop. Like we've yep. actually been given what we've always secretly wanted was an excuse to stop. Yep. And we drove ourselves crazy resisting it yep you know and that that and that's not just the workplace I was in I was just seeing that across the board and I you know I I really wish that well I think if we had different leaders and and different structures then we probably would have done that but given the society that we live in and the yeah structures that we live in we can't you know yeah no I mean I absolutely I I'm thinking of like how intrinsically tied to the doing of something to the compensating someone for, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Uh, Especially like, interestingly, the, the, the lesser you get paid to do it, the more intrinsically tied they are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like how to justify Right. Like your point about like there being a moment where like we could like do nothing for even when we thought it was just going to be a temporary inconvenience and conversations. I'm thinking of, you know, with my clients, we were having this conversation. I was a board chair of an arts organization at the height of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And everyone was just like, well, like, well, how are we going to pay them then? (laughs) I was like, so we're in agreement that they have to do something. Right. (laughs) But it's like, it's not as if you're, um, well, I'll say it this way. You know, the thing that I, every every org was like, okay, well, you know, they have to be doing something. So we're only going to keep on board the people who have actual work to do. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, how do you even determine who has actual work to do? At some point then you have people, you still end up having people who are sitting there with nothing to do. Yeah. You know, so you're actually, you know, valuing and uh, people's um, work. That's what you're doing. You're not actually looking at like what, what functions you need to still achieve. And then to your other point, you know, is there a way to think about it more equitably? Yep. In terms yep. of like having some, it's not, it's not tied at all to labor. Like just the world will understand if your org or something is not doing something at this point in time, because what you want to do is take care of your employees. Yep. And that was like, everyone was looking for the, the, the publicity PR angle story to tell. And no one told that no one actually like did the work of taking care of their people. Um, which would have ultimately garnered them that, you know what I mean? Yeah. It would have <laughs> been a completely different story of the last yeah, year. Yeah. 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 
and even for like free organizations, that was the most like, (laughs) for me, like I, the people of which that fully operated in the before Mm -hmm. with free programming, right? Fully free, Mm -hmm. meaning that Mm -hmm. like whatever it is that they were doing, no one was entering into the space to pay for the experience of the doing of the thing, right? Right. Those organizations were then starting to say like, well, we don't have any, <laughs> we don't have any resources to do anything. And I was like, because <laughs> people aren't coming in. And I was like, huh? <laughs> How, what's the math on that? <laughs> uh. <laughs> like it was a real, it was a real struggle for me. Yeah. Um, for people making like similar sort of decisions around worthiness of employees, particularly, or excuse me, um, not employees, but salary expense lines. Yeah. <laughs> um, when in a before that person, whatever it is they came to the office or institution or storefront to do was not contingent upon an earned revenue stream. Right. <laughs> right. Now all of a sudden, but I mean, it's, it's, I think it's just like, we don't, we don't think about, um, it's, it's interesting to me because I've seen arts, arts organizations specifically, especially those that have younger staff um, and the, the culture of the millennial worker, which we don't, we don't have to get into, but this, um, what they want from a workplace that's different mm-hmm. than, you know, what I came, I'm 40. So I'm not, much more out of that, but you know, what I was taught to expect from a workplace. Um, and I think that's also, um, like I saw a lot of that kind of coming up before the pandemic. Um, and then I think with the pandemic, I'm really curious to see when we get on the other side of it, um, what that looks like again, because, I think that those demands for a workplace that's ethical and transparent and accountable and centers um, its people over, in a lot of cases, I think that the mission and connection with audience, Mm -hmm. like I'm, I mean, like, I think that is going to happen now. Yeah. You know, just even in the conversations around like not going back to the workplace, that's not just to save on rent for buildings, et cetera. It's also, I think, or at least for me, if I'm making decisions like that, I'm making decisions based off of what I think is going to keep um, employees happy and well. That's true. Um, What do you feel or think about as the role of art and culture? Um, And do you think it's fulfilling its role in a, present COVID leaning post maybe world? It's funny because I, you know, I work in this space, but I think when I am out in the world as a real life person, I don't think about it like how arts and culture focuses in my life. I think about, um, how things I'm interested, like, you know, I, I make my schedule based off of things that are intriguing to me, um, which I think some folks might can classify as entertaining. 
um, or educational or in different ways. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think, I think for me, art and culture is about, I think earlier what we were talking about are like moving past it being about me. Mm-hmm. I think it's what like feeds that progression of getting to a space of, um, seeing past yourself, if that makes sense. So for a lot of the art and culture experiences I go to, it's things that I want to experience with other people, Mm -hmm. or it's art that I want to um, take me someplace out of from where I am right now and the moment and the mindset that I am right now. Um, So I see the role of art and culture of like, bringing us, putting us in context or giving us perspective. That's not just our sole individual one. Yeah. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, is it fulfilling its role now? Um, <laughs> I, if it is, then it's not clicking. <laughs> mm, what do you mean? Talk about that. Well, I mean, like, if, if, if arts and culture was delivering on that consistently, like wouldn't our culture look differently? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and maybe that's not the, the point of it, but you know, would we have to remind people about masks, right? Like wearing a mask, would we have to, um, the, so much of, I think the divisiveness we have is, is still that conflict between this like individualism and, um, you know, yeah, this, this identity, this individual identity, as opposed to the collective one. Um, and maybe that's a narrow way to think about it, but. No, I mean, but so would it, I'm interested in the space where you just said, like, wouldn't our culture look differently if it was sort of delivering um, on the ways in which you define arts and culture, which I appreciate, um, right? Like this ability to to both take oneself out of sort of a present context and think about a collective, right? Like mm-hmm. lose the individual for the collective. Um, and I, and I also like wonder how that can happen when I think about, and you know, this is my um, soapbox recently, when I think about just like the famous word access, but not in the ways in which I think the field uses the word access, right? So if the people who might still be very individualistic are not also near potentially places where this type of art and culture understanding (laughs) might exist, right? Like, so then is it about proximity? Is it about they're just not thinking about art and culture? Is it about, is it a translation problem? Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, we're talking arts and culture and then in, I'm like, keep thinking about um, WandaVision. So I was thinking about it because there was a moment in one of the episodes where I can't remember the quote, but she says something about grief. And um, I remembered like the people were making fun of the writer because somebody, someone was saying it was like the best line of, you know, 
literary line ever, you know? Um, but she says this thing that like deeply resonated with people like across like, you know, all sectors. And, and I was, th- I remember thinking like, damn, like this was in a Marvel show. Like this, mm-hmm. you, know, like, you know, like this, 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 this had that impact. And, um, and so I think that like, to your point, like, yes, I would love to, I, I know that there are areas in which people don't have the same type of access to the arts and culture that a place like New York City has or, you know, Chicago, et cetera, um, you know, any name a big city. Um, but I also think that like that outcome that I talked about, one can experience in other places as well. So I think, I think like, you know, I don't know if, if I'm as broad as some definition of arts and culture I've seen where it's like sporting events um, mm-hmm. are, are in it. Um, but I, I think that arts and art and culture for me is, is definitely pretty broad. Yeah. I think, yeah, I would, I love the idea of like the sporting events uh, being in the space of culture particularly Mm -hmm. like depending on the type of sporting events right um but then right like when we think about the places where this happens we're looking for capital a art right Um, yes yeah then you know things like a community garden might not be art and culture but it certainly might be a place where culture happens yeah. And I, I'm not, I mean, I'm sure there is a word for something like a community garden <laughs> that uh, like, you know, whatever the, the, like I've been thinking about places that just like gather people, mm-hmm. eat, eat, but don't necessarily have to enforce interaction. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of my clients, um, Van Allen Institute has been using this term and I was like what does this mean like I need y'all to define it for people who are not architecture and design people Mm -hmm. which is myself (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so I think that they would use a term called social infrastructure Mm. Mm -hmm. I still feel like it falls flat um because yeah, I mean, the idea of what you just said, like people that gather, but they might not interact with each other kind of could be fall under social infrastructure. But like the thing of what else that space offers to a public, I think also, like, I still feel like a word, like a culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it that you need, I guess for me, I think about it like, you need those infrastructure pieces in order to have a culture or, mm-hmm. or you know, um, develop and maintain a culture. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and I, the reason I was responding to infrastructure is because I feel like every community should have a community garden, mm-hmm. right? Like there's, um, you know, I want, you know, when, like I, I didn't go abroad until I was, you know, older or, you know, I didn't go to Europe or anything until I was older, but, um, growing up and watching like foreign films, I see so much about like, you know, British folks who have their gardens and mm-hmm. their community gardens and how like um, health is like a matter of fact and like, you know, 
if you watch any type of like uh, Scandinavian film, they always have, you know, they go to work, they go to the gym, they blah, blah, blah. Like the way like swimming and different mm-hmm. activities are just like a part, a part of the daily life that's not tied to um, like in the American way, some sort of um, achievement or it's a natural way of being. Um, and so infrastructure for me, like I, I like that phrase. Like I like that terminology for what we were talking about because I think it's, um, you need it in order to have a healthy culture. Yeah. One of the things that I'm wondering um, about sort of our attempt to answer this arts and culture question with you as someone who, as I know you being so steeped in film community, and I want to talk about definitely your profession in it and your interests in it, um, when I think about the work that my husband does as a film curator, he calls it, or a film exhibitionist, he calls it. <laughs> so, um, and like in the early days of his work, I just remember how siloed it was from a conversation around art and culture, even mm. like for funding about like folks would be like, yep, this funding opportunity is available for all disciplines of art and culture, except for film and media. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you come across that like in your career? Like, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I remember, um, so my, my first, like, my first nonprofit job is technically working with the NFL, but my first like film nonprofit job, um, exhibition nonprofit job is when I was with Jacob Burns, which is in Westchester County, New York, and um, a little town called Pleasantville. And I remember encountering that and being deep on a grant um, and being deeply frustrated by it because for, uh, you know, an art house cinema in Westchester County, um, you are the art and culture of that town. It's more than just a place where you go to see the new art film. It's also a place that's going to do free programs around um, prison, prison abolition, you know, because there are two major um, prisons in the area, right? And there's a a community of people who volunteer or have folks in inside who want to come together and have these conversations and meet other people who are in this space. Um, And those would be centered around film, but I mean, folks were coming for the conversation, right? They were coming Mm -hmm. for the community uh, to meet each other. Um, And I could see those things happening. I was, I was, you know, programming them and people were coming to them and participating in them. Um, And so to have that not be considered art and culture was, you know, was ridiculous to me. How did you, did you get around it? Um, different, different funding. I mean, for things like that, um, going to local community foundations, you know, who believe and support in that work and also understood the, the power of film to help, you know, shine a light and make transparent their work and, and be an advocate for their work. So, so going those routes were helpful, but like the traditional film and media funders, I mean, you know, I remember grants that were, it was never around the impact of the work or how the work might be used to engage and nurture people, a community. It was always about like, you know, how many black films are you showing? 
And then you'd see people get these grants and I'm like, okay, well, great. This little place in this other, you know, is doing, and who's seeing it, you know? So um, <clears throat> that was always incredibly annoying to me. And I remember one time, this is a little off topic, but there was a grant we didn't get at the Jacob Burns because it was the program that I came up with and I wanted to do, and I had been doing, and I, it was, it was called Remix and, you know, it was looking at the black experience um, on film, um, but also at that time doing a lot of conversations around racism and yeah, it was just, I was trying to do a lot. I was young and, and, so, <laughs> and I, but you know, but it was great for the community there and for me and a lot of artists and, and folks came and gave time and participated in it. And so we were doing this, um, this grant and we didn't get it. And the reason we didn't get it was because they were just like, well, it's a white town. Mm. But there was no, like, I realized, but they don't even know, like, I'm here. And when, yeah. you know, and then they, but then they give grants like that to, you know, predominantly white institutions elsewhere. But it's like, oh, but you're in a major city. So you have more of a chance of, you know, so it was oh, very, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was like looking at penalizing you for your place, but not actually looking at the area, you know, making a lot of assumptions. Yep. Did you take that um, uh, feedback um, Mm -hmm. and did it shape your narrative or your storytelling around the center? Um, You know, it it didn't, it didn't because I, you know, I mean, I was never about to, to, try and pass off that place as anything other than what it was. And, and, and I also recognize that so much of what that program was to people was what I brought to it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And when I left, uh, there's a, another black woman film programmer who I, I had hired while I was there. I, I was just like, as long as she works here, she can do it. You know, like I left it for her. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, and that was understood. Um, it's interesting though, because when I went to, I, so I left Jacob Burns and I went to BAM. So I went from, you know, this, um, art house in the suburbs (laughs) to now, now an art house in a major city in Brooklyn, um, and was just, I, I basically wanted to do what I was doing at Jacob Burns, but do it in Brooklyn. I, I wanted to think about Brooklyn like a small town. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that was like where I started from in terms of thinking about the programming there. Can we pause for a second and can you define so that I'm clear and not just sort of making assumptions from eavesdropping on my husband, Curtis mm-hmm. John, can you define <laughs> um, art house for the conversation? Yeah, I think for me, I define an art house as a cinema that provides curated programming. So not just programming the top new films that are out, uh, but actually doing thoughtful curation and likely also if they are doing new films, they are doing um, independent films. So uh, not the blockbusters, but the, the specialty art films. I see. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you went to BAM, which mm-hmm. 
is where? In Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And when was this? January 2017. Okay. So this would be like, in what, in what life stage of Fort Greene would you, would you call it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say that in the um, fully gentrified stage <laughs> of Fort Greene. Cool. Yeah, I'm all, it's funny because I'm only asking this because another conversation with uh, our colleague Fatima Jones worked at BAM, I think, in the early 2000s. Okay. Um, and, but like grew up in Brooklyn and so like also watched sort of Fort Greene go through its stages. So I just wanted to call out a stage, um, which stage it might be. So fully gentrified, which means what for you and for your vision of Brooklyn as a small town. Yeah. So <laughs> in a lot of ways, what I wanted to do was, was, it was, it was two things. Um, I think it was when I was at the, at the Burns, Oscar so white, you know, that whole thing mm-hmm. was around, I think around that time, it really annoyed me because <laughs> it was just like looking at this, like end small thing as a, and ignoring everything else before it, like before you even get to that, like what's all, what are all the other issues? Yep. Um, and so it's just putting the pressure on the wrong thing, um, which then to me is just a waste of everybody's time. And I wanted to present work that reminded people that we were always here. Mm. Very beginning, we were here and we were making work and we were creating um, and creating good work. It wasn't about, yes, there was... Um, lack of access and lack of opportunity, but there were also people creating, right? Yeah. And they were being overlooked or, or um, obscured purposely. Um, and so I just wanted to change how we talked about things. <laughs> um, so it wasn't just this demand of like, or, or not this um, demand, but just this like erasure of mm-hmm. the folks who made it before. I wanted to, I wanted to acknowledge that. Um, and so when I got to BAM, it wasn't immediate. It's probably about um, a year in, I shifted the entire uh, repertory program. I said that we're not gonna have a repertory program, which is just you know doing retrospectives, showing older titles. Um, we're not gonna have a repertory program um, that is doing all of these white male retrospectives. You got, you got New York has a, a rich cinema going uh, community and you have a number of major institutions and cinemas that do that work really well. So I want to speak to what I think um, is important for this community, fully gentrified or not, folks are still hanging on in there, right? Yep. I wanted them to be seen and I wanted them to come back to the cinema that they had been going to as well. So I changed the focus of the program and said, we're only going to present work from black and brown people and women. Mm. So that's the direction we went in. And at first people were like, huh, you know, (laughs) you're not going to do a Michael Mann retrospective. Like, you know, you know, we do these things and they, and they, and actually the, the only thing that they would kind of like, you know, they'd just be like, we're not going to make as much revenue we're not going to make as much revenue. And so like, that was kind of the, the, the reason to stop me, but the, you know, the, 
privilege I had at BAM was that um, one screen was curated programming. The other three screens were first run. And though BAM is an art house cinema, uh, because it's, you know, in Brooklyn and there's, you know, major connections there in terms of subways, et cetera, we'd play titles that were not necessarily blockbusters, but a little, little bigger than your average, you know, yeah. art house cinema. So that, um, that's, we, we paid for ourselves, right? Yeah. Like that sustained the program and also sustained all of our salaries. Like we were neutral for the organization. Uh, for, for BAM collectively. And that um, was how I was able to do it. I should pay for it, you know? <laughs> and in terms of thinking about the small town, I kind of, that it was like doing that consistently, making clear, like, that's what we were doing. And then when Ash, uh, you know, Ashley Clark came in and fully embraced that idea and went with it and, you know, thinking about some folks, I think, I think at one point I was like, I'm sorry if you like, I'm sorry if you feel like I'm tying your hands as a programmer in any way, or like, or, you know, especially as a, uh, as a, as a black man, like, I, you know, sometimes people want to be able to show that they can do it all. And he was like, no, this is exactly what I want to do. Right. And like, that's why I liked working with him. And I liked working with Curtis and um, the, the folks, Natalie Razo and the folks I had on my team, they, everyone um, believed in what we were doing. Jesse Trussell, like everyone believed in what we were doing and were able to express themselves through that. Yeah. Um, and so then that brought folks in and that was really great. Like making those connections in the cinema, people who lived in this, in the area for a long time or had to leave and just being like, I see what you're doing, you know, and I'm, I'm in this and people sharing stories and like doing a Marlon Riggs uh, retrospective and folks in the audience talking about um, when they first saw that on public, on public television, when they were a kid with their mom and, you know, all of those things and specifically black people saying those things in that space was incredibly important to me because that wasn't necessarily happening in other parts of the building. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I moved to Brooklyn from Harlem in 2012 um, and lived in Bed-Stuy and, you know, Curtis dragged me to some film things when he felt like I wouldn't like grumble. (laughs) Um, But like BAM was not, it just was not on my like things I want to spend my money on. Right. Yeah. Um, When I, for for years, when I first moved to Brooklyn, um, and, and I didn't know, like, I hadn't met you yet, but I knew that Curtis was working with you. Um, and like, sure, Curtis had, you know, his whatever, not whatever, <laughs> Curtis had his, you know, um, with his collaborators, the Caribbean film series. And yeah. for that, um, the new voices in black cinema fest that like, you know, landed in BAM infrequently mm-hmm. for the black you know, the black month, um, and other times, but I can tell you just like from an outsider's perspective at the time that like there became more and more moments when I would be looking at sort of BAM films programming and being like, Oh, maybe I want to check this out and being like, Hey babe, can we go see this? Mm-hmm. Right. Which is drastically different right so here you have someone who would not consider film to be their you know immediate medium to go to for experiencing art and culture beginning to to 
to like be responsive to the, the what you called and I love it the little pushes yeah. <laughs> right yeah. that moved an institution to be able to see people there themselves yeah there. yeah I mean everyone is like what did you what did you do and I was like I consistently engage with people. We consistently engage with the people we wanted to have in the cinema. I mean, but that's what everyone does as a programmer. You just not acknowledging who you're talking to, yep. you know? Yep. And I remember like, that was the big, big thing. Like I wanted to change the tone of how we spoke, right? Like um, all institutions is not just BAM, but they have a way of the institution has, it's a way of speaking, right? You have a copywriter who can write in the BAM voice, you know, or this is the BAM look this is, and like really having to, to push against that and folks saying, well, you're going to then like, what about our core? <laughs> and I, you know, like, no, I don't, that's not, I'm decentering them. If they want to come, they can come, but this is not about them. And sometimes that was, you know, we would get that not, not necessarily if, if people are writing in and saying anything, I didn't see that, but I, I definitely had felt that in some of the programs, um, especially early on with just kind of like um, your typical older art house patron being like, why am I not represented here? Mm-hmm. Um, and then just having to like take them into the lobby and say, this is why, you know, Um, I think I was able to do a lot of that also at BAM because cinema was not the, the main, um, it wasn't the important, the important program. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Were there any other, like, some of your favorite moments at BAM? Um, I always loved the <laughs> opening night party of BAM Cinema Fest because I just wanted that to feel like a house party. <laughs> and it was also really great because um, two of my like favorite co-workers uh, were two other Black women who uh, did corporate sponsorship. And so um, they, <laughs> Hennessy was our, our sponsor. <laughs> Yeah, I've been to a few of those. That was definitely, yep. <laughs> and then uh, Coco, who is head of uh, education and community, um, is also a former dancer. So just like kind of like between them getting the Hennessy and then Coco connecting me with the best DJs. Like we really, I think I just threw the opening night parties for myself and for yeah. us. Um, and I think that's why people people really like them. Yeah, those are those are great moments. Um and like let's talk about um the black women holding up the institution. (laughs) (laughs) Um I mean, you know, I just think that like one of the things that one of the reasons why I feel like it for me as my personal project with this podcast is both like the interconnectedness of all of us across the field, across the country, Mm -hmm. um, but also like the invisibility of the labor that moves Mm -hmm. the institution. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, (laughs) I'm sure you saw several weeks ago, the New York times did some sort of little piece on, um, 
the outgoing BAM president's um, mm-hmm. compensation package. Yep. And, you know, that aside, buried within that was, you know, these three women are the <laughs> interim heads of the organization. And I'm like, can we talk about that? Right. Right. Can we talk about that? Two of these three women are black women. One is a CFO. Yep. Uh, the other is Coco, who I spoke about, who, like, I will tell you, we damn near died in the pandemic. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't because of dealing with the stress of trying to figure out how to manage a major institution performing arts space in that, in this unprecedented time, unprecedented time. It was, we were nearly broken from trying to manage <laughs> a major arts institution, period. Yeah. You know, and, and like, I was like, we're, we're choosing to look at whatever type of little silly deal happened there or, and not even silly, but whatever, whatever, however you want to think about that and not about like this real labor. Uh, Jennifer became the CFO and like a day later, the shutdown happened. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, like, you know, I mean, and, and, and you and I both know with like major institutions, like there are always, always financial situations. Right. So it's like, you know, it's just a lot. And I think even for me, I felt when I was there, my, my labor became so much in terms of what I was responsible for. It was so seen, you know, it was like any space I went into, people were just like, Oh my God, are you okay? You know? Um, And that is bad in itself. Like we've overburdened this one, like this one we have put, I mean, at some point in the pandemic, they gave me the marketing department and I, so, so I had uh, film, I had humanities in the archive and, and then I got the marketing team. And part of that was, there was no head of marketing. The, the, the president at the time was, um, that was looking for one when the, when the pandemic came down, she felt she had a lot of direct reports already and didn't have the capacity given the larger institutional issues to handle marketing. And so I was the one who did end up with that. Um, but that was also just like, I think, to be honest, my breaking point. Yeah. Um, and also, um, and, and also, you know, I, I did, though I didn't hear her at the time, I, you know, want to acknowledge that both Coco and Jennifer were just like, girl, don't, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, um, and like, so I just, just to say like, you know, I feel, I feel, I guess I want to acknowledge, I feel lucky that we were, that we had each other. Um, because I wonder if I was alone and I took that, um, how much more I would have suffered. Yeah, that is a whole other type of labor. I mean, you know, like, oh, like the ways in which the few of us that end up in these spaces then have to, you know, run the institution (laughs) and then also care for and make sure we are okay. Yeah. You know, um, and that goes 
behind the scenes. So it's like, well, you know, Delana looks like she's fine. She's not complaining about anything. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> like your DMs and like my girl Jessica Lynn's DMs and like everybody, like we're like trying, we're holding each other up behind those scenes, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it's like the jobs that you're hired, the job you're hired for. Mm-hmm. Then it's the caring for your teams. Like truly, like if you're for me, like I'm I'm I manage from a space of like I'm here to make sure you're okay. Yeah. So you can do the work that you need to do. Right. Um, and and I, I think a lot about the fact that I spend more time with the people I work with than people that I I love and care for deeply, you know. So I I want to like just even on that human level, even if I know you and I will never break bread, bread together, <laughs> yep. I still want to care about you on that human level. Um, so this can be a healthy space for both of us. And, and so you, you have that work and taking care of your teams. Um, and then, like you said, taking care of each other, um, reminding, um, and for me, when I say each other, I mean the, the black woman that I was fortunate to, to work with. Like I, I, it's so lonely being a leader. So to have gone through that and had two other women in the same position as me who could understand what I was going through um, was just like, you know, I think that's why we all ended up at that place together at that time. Yeah. <laughs> um, was so that we, you know, otherwise I, I don't know how we would have done it. And so I see them now um, taking BAM forward and I see, people saying congratulations. And I'm just like, that, that's the wrong word. You know, like it's not, it's not congratulations. Like, you know, we need to be, we need to be really checking on them. Yeah. It's like, what can I continue to do for you? Exactly. (laughs) Like, how can I, you know, that's it. And so I, I, I found that so hard. Um, I found that really hard. I feel for them. Yeah. One thing that, um, you just said that I wrote down, I'm like taking notes while you're talking is this idea that like leadership is not an independent sport. Mm. Did I hear you say that? Or am I um, or, well, I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't, but I was, I think I know what I, um, I was well, one. I, I think that, I think that leadership can be very lonely, but it shouldn't be. Yeah. And I think that in order to do it where you truly can care for others, uh, you need to have those peer allies. And something that I, I think the way that I actually learned that was um, consistently working in under white women leaders who did not do that and suffered for it. Yep. So, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's, it's all about if you're, you know, at the level where you're really at the top, then you got to go find other top people that you trust, right. And have that community with them. Um, so yeah, that's not necessarily, it's not an independence. It's, it, you can't do it alone. Yeah. You just you cannot do it alone. I want to switch gears and talk about where you are now. Can you tell us what you're up to these days? You gave us a little bit of a hint when I said that you were Sundance. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm interested in like, what was it like 
changing your life in the middle of the pandemic. Both like, I don't know, you were probably living in Brooklyn, no? When you worked at yeah, them and yeah. then now. Changes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 2020 is, I turned 40 November, 2020. So pre-pandemic, I was already seeing like the 2020 as being like a pivotal moment for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know what I was going to change, but I knew it was going to change something. And um, I had been thinking about my future, whether it was going to be with BAM or elsewhere for a little while, even before the pandemic. I, I, you know, January, 2020, I was in um, Jamaica with my family. Um, my parents are from St. Anne and my dad is from, from a little, um, I wouldn't even call it a town either, a little slice of something, <laughs> whatever they want to call it. <laughs> but um, in the area is called retirement. So I brought in the new year in retirement. And I, <laughs> let me tell you, I did not, I did not want to leave. I remember yeah. sitting at the foot of the bed, you know, in our, our um, you know, like the Duncan family home. And, uh, and just being like, I'm, God, I just, this is where I need to, I just don't, I want to do nothing, you know? And then of course you come back and then it's like, the world is like, okay, here, you're doing nothing, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, but I, I, um, I knew that like, I couldn't continue the way that I was going, that I needed rest, you know? Um, I just needed rest. And so I didn't mean to take the Sundance job. <laughs> I, was, I um, but I, I wanted to, um, I knew I wanted to move on. Um, yeah. and, and so what happened was a Sundance was, or um, Bam was offering packages um, for voluntary separation as a way to avoid having any further layoffs. Um, and I took one. Yep. And I, you know, obviously they were not expecting me to take one, but I took one. I just had a, mo I just was like, I want to go. And, and a big part of that was I wanted to, I wanted to have my own place. You know, I'd been renting for a really long time and um, moving, a, you know, working in film, moving around a lot. Um, I just wanted my place, you know? Um, and so I, I bought a house. Um and part of that was also accepting an offer from Sundance so I could continue to have my house. <laughs> <laughs> Necessary, yep. yep. Yeah. So, you know, I had a little bit of rest in between jobs, but I certainly didn't have the amount that I needed. Yeah. Um, and I, I definitely I dove right in with Sundance. And, you know, I, I, it wasn't like, oh, well, that was the offer on the table. Like, there was a lot of deep thought Um in consideration about what it, what that, what the role is, what I felt um, it could be, and what the work was going to be, I knew it was going to be a lot, um, and and I also felt in a lot of ways ready for it, um, but I don't think I could have articulated why I did then. I could say now, um, having been here for however many months it, it's been. Um, I realized that part of what I'm experiencing was, um, is very, very similar to what I experienced kind of my first year at BAM. 
but this time I, I know what's going on. Yeah. You know, like I know how I know what to react to and what not to react to, you know, like um, it's, you know, I, I had the other, the other day, I was just like, wow, something like that. You would have really gotten me angry before, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that would have just been so frustrating or sad or whatever. And now it's just like, all right, bet, like, okay. You know, like, it's just, um, so it's, I, I feel like I'm ready for it now. And I also in some ways feel like, um, you know, I, 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 it just feels that that first year ban was so hard and I still have scars from it. And I, I just think like in, in a lot of ways, like um, I had to have that to be here now. Yeah. And so when did you start as a dance? Um, in September, end yeah. of September. Cause I, the festival was on my birthday. <laughs> so that was January. <laughs> Um, so you like immediately went into festival planning, no? Yeah. I mean, I, I got in, I think my first day was September 28th and immediately jumped in. I mean, the festival went off extremely well. Um, and I, I say that from the perspective of someone on the inside who was like, are we going to be able to do this? Cause it was just so much, it was just like so much work and moving parts and like, you know, people, you know, redeployed from their normal or what their typical work is to another thing. You know, it was literally all hands on deck. We were building the, you know, that, that whole thing, you're building the plane while you're flying it. Um, So it was a lot. And I think in the beginning, I, I did have a lot of, I did put a lot of pressure on myself because it's like, I want to contribute. And it's like, oh, right. I don't know. These people don't know me. I don't know them. (laughs) We're on zoom. Every, every organization has its own language that you have to learn, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I remember at one point, a woman who'd been there for a while, she called me one night and she was like, listen, I can tell you're smart. I know that. Um, and she's like, I can tell you're smart. I just want you to know you're going to get really frustrated because you're going to think that you're dumb. And she's like, you're not dumb. We just have like, you know, it's, a, we're just, it's just a really hard organization to learn. She was like, it took me, it took me a year. I started talking to other people and they were like, yeah, it takes like a year, maybe two years to actually wow. understand the org. Um, and then that started to kind of give me like, okay, all right. Like, this is not crazy. This is just a very unique culture. Right. You know? Like you said earlier, it's not about you. Not about me. Right. Yep. Yeah. And so planning for what is decidedly an experience for many people, right? Like, as you said, like leaving their lives, going to, was it Park City, Utah for Mm -hmm. however long. Um, And then I know that they're like pre-festival and post-festival things, right? Um, To now having to navigate not only just like workplace culture and new job culture, on zoom <laughs> but now having to like think about a decidedly physical place-based national international event online how did that go <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well a lot of i mean you know coming in end of september a lot of things were already baked right yeah. so i was able to you know make there were a lot of things that were baked and there were a lot of things that were completely not even started. So, <laughs> um, 
Um, but I think, you know, the, by the nature, even of just like what we went, just the, the pandemic, but then also the, the uprisings and, and Sundance being like a lot of orgs having a, um, a very large um, millennial workforce, um, the, the values and what people were speaking to in that moment, folks were like uh, galvanizing around and then with an expectation that they would be delivered upon in the festival. Um, and I think that they took very seriously the idea, like if you're going to have a festival online, what does, what does safety and belonging look like online? Right. Yeah. So thinking about uh, the, you know, yes, we want to have all these places where people can chat and convene virtually, but then how do we also ensure that they can be safe for people? Um, and that was, you know, a big part of what, um, Tabitha's vision for her first festival, also just on the heels of, of last year's festival where that wasn't necessarily always the case. Um, and I can say for, for myself, just going to Sundance um, as an industry person, it's, you know, I'd be happy if I ran into Curtis and be like, oh God, Curtis, you know? Like, you know so like, <laughs> Wait, are you saying because he's a black person? <laughs> <laughs> just only that reason, you know? No. <laughs> But you do have this thing, you're like, oh, God, I'm in Utah. Yeah. And it's just convening. And it's like, oh, it's just all of this stuff. And, you know, so, so yeah. Um, and so online, I think, actually gave us an opportunity to try some things out that, um, or not try some things out, to be able to figure out what that means for the organization. Mm -hmm. You know, so talking with artists, talking with industry, talking to folks, but also just, just rec like, what can we actually do? Right. Um, and so they, we did community agreements. Um, uh, Quayla and her team there have done a lot of good work in that space. There's still, you know, work to be done, but we're building towards something, thinking about accessibility. What does that mean? Um, you know, being really, really specific about it. So it's not just code or a catch all for everything like community has become. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited about responsibility for that. I don't know if it's responsibility or ownership of, but like empowering that work, centering that work, and then it not being something that you think about at the end, right? And we didn't completely, um, I don't think we, I, didn't, I don't, I think that we, we, what we did this past year was good, but I'm really, really excited to be here from the beginning now and yeah. see how we bake those into every single thing that we are programming and it not be like, okay, once this piece of content is done, we got to get it to someone. And, oh, if we don't have the time to get it to the captioner, then it's not going to happen. Like, no, like all of that is considered within the, the workflow and even in the concept of what we do. Um, yeah. So that's, I feel like I'm all over the place. In this no, combo, but like, that's, that's what I'm like really um, excited about now is I'm glad that I came in with enough time to kind of work with people and get a sense of them. But, but I'm really, really happy that I'm here now from the beginning. Yeah. You know? Yep. So how I experienced Sundance, I love this. I get to like, like how I experienced your programming <laughs> <laughs> is um, that there are satellites. Mm -hmm. offerings of Sundance, right? So Sundance could be in Wichita, Kansas, or Columbia, South Carolina, um, versus only 
you know, watching Curtis like pack his snow boots, <laughs> you know, to go to Park City, Utah, right? Um, and so I'm interested in like how y'all landed on the idea of the satellite thing, which, you know, given a national, for better or for worse during the pandemic, um, different locations probably had different um accessibility options in terms yeah. of the ways of presenting and so like columbia south carolina for better or for worse <laughs> <laughs> you know could actually provide a semblance of a theater festival experience an in-person theater festival experience in addition to online stuff um and so yeah i just want to sort of talk about share or like if you can like what was that decision making do you think that like that will have turned a corner for Sundance or was it just like a COVID response I mean no it's it's definitely not just a COVID response I mean so I was um that that this was Tabitha's vision um Mm -hmm. was you know still wanting to have a live component as much as one as possible safely um and also taking the opportunity to um, expand outside of Utah, right? So what does that look and how do you have like this collective Sundance moment that's happening both, you know, in the air and on the ground. Um, And I, and, and actually she, I, you know, I think, I think she had announced it. Maybe it was like a New York times article. I I forget the timeline, but then she approached me at BAM. And, and with the question of, would you be a satellite screen? So mm-hmm. that's when I first encountered it <laughs> as, as a potential venue. And I remember, and I've, I've told her this, I've told her this since, um, that I was like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> just, 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. just because like, to me, it, it made more sense for the cinemas that we ended up going with, right? Like the regionals, the, the um, community spaces, um, than it did for for an entity like like BAM, and I also felt like it would be better for uh, and, and and then not to mention um, BAM has a a film festival that yeah. would have been in um, would have been harder to do if we if we were showing Sundance films so before it so um, I do think though just like coming from that cinema um, that space from that exhibition space you know. Curtis, you know, was, would put, pack up his boots to go to Park City, but before he goes to Park City, he's going to go to Midway, right, and go mm-hmm. to the Art House Convergence, and um, that's where, you know, he and I would typically see each other and, and other, other Art House programmers from across the country and would convene uh, for, you know, our conference, talk best practices, network, you know, be in fellowship, whatever. Um, and I always felt like Sundance didn't, Sundance has a relationship, has a relationship with Art House Convergence, but I always felt like Sundance could have used its influence a little bit more to help Mm -hmm. um, make the Convergence um, be more effective um, in advocating for and supporting Art House, Art Houses in the country. We don't have like a a real body. so, you know, really what holds us all together is a message board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so what I really, what I loved about this initiative was like, um, you know, using that platform to shine a light on this network um, and that not for the, not necessarily for the, the world to see, but um, for the industry to see, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it, it's like, it's like people make films, but they don't think about the, they don't think about the cinemas, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and like, I, you know, and there's so many times that comes up that come. Um, and so, you know, for me, I came from the producing side and then went into the exhibition side. And I remember when I got a job as a film programmer, I was like, I didn't even know this was a job, you know, mm. uh, like, what is this? So I love the satellite screen initiative because it's, it's bringing the world that I, really kind of found myself in um, and really embraced into my new space. You know, uh, a festival is a moment, but the art house is what's consistently engaging these audiences year round, you know, and then like what kind of impact can we make when we are, you know, supporting um, programmers like Curtis and elsewhere um, and thinking about like, what the future of art house cinemas are, that they're not just going to be in rich white suburban towns that have the resources to rehabilitate an old, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, abandoned cinema, but now they can be in any community that wants to have a cinema. Now that they know that that's a possibility. Yeah. If you'll allow me to indulge just like two quick stories about my experience of it. Firstly, I got to be a sponsor <laughs> Red <laughs> Olive sponsored Sundance. <laughs> well, thank you for your support. <laughs> at, uh, you know, Columbia, South Carolina. Um, but like, you know, um, when Curtis and I left Brooklyn to return to my hometown of Columbia, South Carolina, I intentionally purchased and sort of put our roots down in this, lower-income neighborhood that I grew up in, Mm -hmm. uh, which is now primarily Black and Latinx. It was more Black and white when my parents moved in in the 90s. Um, And up the street uh, was the mall that I went to, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the mall was in the shadow of my grandmother's neighborhood, um, which was like one of the first Black neighborhoods that Black folks could own um, houses uh, in the city. And as, you know, suburban Southern towns where there's a mall, there's decidedly a movie theater. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I think it was, it was just built to like drop kids like myself off so that you could go to the movies and then go to the mall and parents could have like free babysitting for (laughs) hours on the weekend. (laughs) It was like, if I wasn't at the hair salon, I was at this mall. Um, And, you know, uh, disinvestment of this particular community and the ways in which, you know, what happens when we think about building cultural districts and like mobilizing resources into really tight container of a space means that resources elsewhere are pulled from to build. Mm -hmm. Um, And racism which yeah. play, always plays a factor, I think, in the building of where people live and reside, uh, particularly in Southern towns, meant that this mall and its sort of surroundings and environs was basically empty. And this is it, like COVID wasn't even a player in this. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and so when we landed here, I was like, wow, there's so much possibility again, right? Like if someone cared to think about this part of town where there was so much like, what's the word, saturation elsewhere, there could be yeah. so much possibility here. And so, you know, we were thinking of in the fall of like drive-ins and other uh, moving going outdoor experiences for our side of town when COVID hit and sort of like, and no one really knew how to negotiate or didn't have the resources to negotiate sort of other opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so through that, like Curtis built the relationship with this, this theater that was near this mall, which allowed us sort of really easily us, I say us, this is all Curtis for the record. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like a sponsor taking credit. Um, It allowed Red Olive to, no, um, it allowed (laughs) the Luminal Theater to really be able to partner with the existing theater that was no longer getting, you know, the blockbusters Mm -hmm. to reimagine the space as a place that Sundance could land for a week. Right? Yeah. And in this Black neighborhood, like, that and there of course were people who wanted to experience Sundance in Columbia which meant that like white folks were coming to a part of town they probably have not yeah ever or had not been to in a long time (laughs) (laughs) and I remember like one woman walking in and being like how is this even here um so that was one um there's another like eavesdropping right um and being the helpful wife um at the setup of the opening there was this one older guy older white guy who was like you know telling the story of packing up and going to park city he's like i grew up in in utah and then i moved out to columbia 30 years ago but i go back every year and I remember Sundance started when I was in high school. And now I get to, you know, he pointed to his kid. Now I get to bring my high schooler to Sundance. I love you know? it. You yeah, know? I love it. And I, <laughs> what I also love, especially that, that, that first, that first story is just this, like, it reminds me of the folks who are angry that Sundance wasn't there, mm-hmm. right? Like wasn't where they were, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you know, I, I love someone coming in like, how, how does it have to be? <laughs> really looked around like, where am I? <laughs> no, that's great. It's great. We were, you know, one of the things we kept saying is that being online gave us the, the ability to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Um. But it also gave us the, we, but the satellite screens also gave us the ability to like, you know, go to different places. And what I think also about it was it was never about like Sundance being up front, you know, yeah. it, was, it was Curtis, it was, yeah. it was, it was Delon, you know, like it was you all that were there, the faces interacting. It wasn't, it wasn't Sundance swooping in, you know, it was, it was just us providing some films. Yeah, and the ability to be a, a part of something larger, and you know, I, I, I like that's what I think excites me about the future, um, especially you know, um, I, I don't know how we, how we all succeed if we don't partner. Mm-hmm. Coming out of um, 
this pandemic and going forward. Um, and I see a lot of like opportunities for people to be like, you know what, this is my lane. Like mm -hmm. in this, in this world of, of X, Y, Z, this is what I do really well. And this other org over here does this well and this, and like, this is how we, we take care of our community. Right? Yeah. Like, all of us. And I, I think that um, like, that's, that I felt like was embedded within the satellite screen idea mm -hmm. as well. Um, because, you know, there's an engagement with new audiences that's happening. Um, even if it's a bit indirect for Sundance. Yeah. And like watching Curtis be able to connect with on the ground filmmakers and film programmers. Yeah. yeah. Because Sundance was kind of not was with him, you know, when he mm -hmm. went into that space. Um, not as you said, leading the way. Yeah. Um Certainly, I feel like it would have just taken us a lot longer. Us, there I go again. It would have taken him a lot longer to make <laughs> those, you know, connections and introductions and really, like, get to the heart of it, which is, like, I want to do some dope shit, show, show some great films, yeah. decidedly black film lineup, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, for Sundance in Colombia for black folks. Um, mm -hmm. and my last little story about that was Curtis came, I didn't go to this screening because it was my birthday mm -hmm. and, uh, my friend, uh, took, like, we sort of just had dinner, um, outside of the screening, but Curtis came back and said, you know, it was, and it was ended up being one of the best, I think it was passing, um, showed that mm -hmm. night and a lot of older folks came to that screening and, he was like, yeah, you know, this older black woman walked up to me and was like, do you have a donation box? And he was like, no, it's free, right? Yeah. Um, this whole thing is free for y'all. And she was like, well, I want to I wanna give you something. <laughs> and she handed him a $5 bill. And she's like, I know it's not much, but like, thank you for doing this here. I, I love that. And I just was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. That, like, I remember, I think you would, like, you had texted me that. And I did, like, tear up. Yeah. And I did share that with Tabitha, too. And she's like, oh. you know, like, I just, like, that's what we want. And I also love, and this is so, this is kind of whatever, but I also love that it's done in a way that, like, that's not on anybody's fundraising sheet. Yep. In their, in their fundraising pitch. You know what yep, I mean? Like yep. there's no, there's no picture. We're not going to put a picture on a flyer of an older black woman present, you know, like there's a, <laughs> there's a story that's going to be written down and put into like a yep. grant proposal. It just, it, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It just was, it was a great moment. So thank you for allowing me to sort of relive my like high school angsty days and um, <laughs> no I'm I'm really I'm really glad that we got to do it I'm glad that I, I got to Sundance in time um to really have a, a little bit of input in terms of like who we were partnering with yeah um I feel like we've been all around the world <laughs> we didn't even talk about what is black film and is it <laughs> the people on the screen or is it the filmmakers? 
<laughs> I, I think I'm kind of glad. <laughs> That'll be part two at some future day. Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to offer for the record? Uh, no, I think I'm just like, you know, happy to have been here and had this time to chat with you. Um, and I hope that people get something out of oh, me, yeah. my little yes. I mean, we learned about, well, we continue to archive the work of Black women <laughs> for our favorite <laughs> cultural institutions. Um, and what really struck for me was, again, the, like the little pushes, right? Like sometimes yeah. that we we don't immediately see the impact of the thing that we feel like we keep pushing up against, but eventually yeah. it moves, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm going to learn about things not being about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a journey. So let me know how it goes. <laughs> It's going to be a, a, a great discovery moment. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, have a good one.